There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, you know, it's the just the end of summer here now, and yep. people are starting to think about going back to school and, you know, what that entails. I don't know if you're... Your gang. Well, you've got one going to university. No one going to university, fall. so that's going to be um, a bit of a move. But otherwise, yeah. I'm almost in the clear. Yeah, the days of buying pencil cases and duo tangs are probably behind you. Thank God. Well, last week we started this discussion about what is the value of research and is there value to it? And I think there is, of course, yep. right? Right on. But how does it pertain to, I don't know, managing a portfolio, managing your wealth, and all those good things? So. I think today you're going to take us through kind of a case study on this, right? Yeah. Like, let's just, I just wanted to further that discussion a little bit and take it from the theoretical into the, into the practical. So, so yeah, we talked about research. We talked about some pitfalls that arise from things like sampling error or too small sample sizes. And we also talked about the wisdom of crowds and actually the wisdom of crowds does kind of dovetail nicely into what we're going to be talking about today. So today we're going to, talk about the role of empirical research and how to develop investment strategies that can be implemented in a practical and cost-effective way and still take advantage of the learning that comes from that empirical research. So we talked a lot in the past about some of the early research that was done in finance. Or finance. Okay, are we going to say finance or finance for the rest of know. this uh, podcast? Just pick one. I don't okay, really care. I'm, I'm going with finance. Yeah. A lot of the research was done at the individual company level, and we talked about Benjamin Graham, the father of fundamental analysis, and his work, Security Analysis, provided a framework that basically allowed allowed you to value a company's assets on a per share basis in order to compare that to the trading price of the stock. And if the value was more than the trading price, then there'd be an expectation the share price would ultimately go up. And also by buying stocks below what they were perceived as the fundamental value, provided a margin of safety against a decline in the trading price. So so that was the concept of Benjamin Graham. That was a real quick and dirty yeah, refresh. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, on- there's a couple of books that you might want to read if you want to go into a little more, a little more detail there. But outside of that, prior to the 1950s, most investment research was largely anecdotal based on beliefs rather than actual facts and data, just because the the data wasn't available. Wait, wait, data or data? I'm going data. Okay, data. And what happened, and we've talked in the past about the CRISP program, which is the Center for Research into Security Prices, and basically it was just a massive computer program that allowed researchers to access stock market data going back to 1926. And so with that development, it allowed researchers to analyze that historical data, develop models and theories, and actually test their models by looking back at various periods of of time and history. So that's like backwards testing? Is that right? In fact, I think some of the early research, even that Fama and French did, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, 
was based on research going back 40 years or 50 years. And with the CRISP data, they were actually able to go back, you know, 70 or 80 years and to see if their theories held, held true in all of those time periods. I mean, a lot's changed since 1928 though, right? That's right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just the way we do our business has changed dramatically. I mean, sure it has. Think about the uh, flow of information in 1928 versus 2022, right? I mean, how would people get their securities prices? They'd get them in the newspaper, I suppose, right? Exactly. That's right. Where we can get it on a second-by-second second basis. That's right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So using that, that data, and one of the early models that came out of the 1960s was something we've talked about a lot, the efficient markets hypothesis by Eugene Fama. And that basically postulated that markets efficiently incorporate all available information about a particular stock into the current price. And then again, that speaks a little bit to the wisdom of crowds. The trading price of a stock essentially gathers up all of the available information and buyers and sellers come together and agree on a price. And if that's true, then conducting exhaustive research into a company to determine if its trading price is above or below its intrinsic value, i.e. to determine if the stock is mispriced, is of little value. Well, of course, the model provided a very good place to start in constructing portfolios and was the basis for the development of index funds, which were first introduced in the U.S. market in 1972, and the first index ETF, Exchange Traded Fund, was launched in Canada in 1990. And index mutual funds and ETFs have grown in market share significantly and owe their success to the academic studies that provided the underlying justification for their existence. Now, with regards to efficient market hypothesis specifically, there's a lot of people who argue that it's it's either just plain wrong or wrong sometimes, but as a model, it still holds up incredibly well, and the massive growth in passive indexing strategies supports that that view. But there's like there's three forms of efficient market hypothesis, right? right. There's weak form. Tell me if I'm if I got this right or wrong just off the top of my head. Weak form, semi-strong, and strong. I right. think are the three, right? Yeah. So weak form would be just that everything is priced based off of publicly available information, right? No, is that right? Yeah, I thought that was semi-strong. Well, now now you're now you're getting technical on me. I think weak is basically you either believe in active management or don't, right? Like you believe in the market price, and semi-strong is. It's all publicly available information dictates the price. And then strong is all public and private information, which just can't happen, right? So most market participants believe in semi-strong efficient market hypothesis. Right. And as we'll talk about, you know, the, there's a lot of theories about, well, behavioral economics, for instance, which we've talked about, has suggested that, well, markets can't be efficient because, because investor behavior skews markets and causes them to become inefficient. I think the proponents of efficient markets would agree that that happens sometimes. And there are periods when markets become inefficient for a short period of time, and then usually they they revert. But going back to that example of getting your stock prices from the newspaper back in 1928 versus getting them on a second-by-second -second basis, yeah. I think the people, when they talk about that, would say that, yes, that security mispricing can occur, but it gets corrected quickly. That's right. So some of the other key academic discoveries in finance included things like the size factor, which we've talked about small companies tend to outperform large companies over time, and the value factor, which is just that companies with low relative prices 
tend to outperform companies with high relative prices. And again, these factors, which were captured in a 1992 paper by Fahman French, which was called the cross-section of expected stock returns, really was looking at all of the data that they looked back all the way through 1926 and tried to identify, you know, what were some of the factors that that provide higher expected returns, you know, in stocks. And let's face it, virtually all of the academic research into stocks, again, is all based on what we always talk about. And when we talk about it in, in individual terms, it's always a market timing question, right? What's the market going to do? And academic research, a lot of it is focused on what do we think stocks are going to do in the long run? What are the factors that affect stock prices? Can we identify any factors? And, and so that's what a lot of this research was, you know, is trying to find out. Can we find any correlating factors, anything that is, is connected to higher stock returns or high expected returns? And, and again, the Fahman French paper, which was the three-factor model, dealt with that in a significant way. But we're not suggesting that small companies are better companies than large companies. We're just saying that they have more room to grow in their stock price. Well, and, and, and listen, and there's, you know, and one of the things I'll talk about as we get into it is like, so if you, if you have a theory or a model that says, okay, well, small companies have higher expected returns, it's got to be sensible. So does it make sense that small companies might have higher expected returns? And, you know, so just to deal with that, since we're talking about it, of course it would make sense because small companies have a higher cost of capital. What does that mean? A small company might be a relatively new company without a long track record. If they're going to raise money through issuing bonds or issuing stock, the cost of capital is what they have to pay to encourage investors to buy into their, into their company. And a small company like that will have a higher cost of capital. So from the investor standpoint, who's investing in that company, they have a higher expected return than they would by investing in a large established company. And so that just makes sense. It's because the company is riskier, not yeah. because it's less risky. And so, you know, if you believe in capitalism and the risk and, and return or expected return are related, then, then that makes total sense that small companies would have higher expected returns. I wonder what the current cost of capital for Blockbuster would be. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm kidding because Blockbuster doesn't really exist anymore. Exactly. So listen, we've been talking about Fama and French a lot. And so what I'd like to do is basically just take this for the next 15 minutes or so and do a case study and look at how a mutual fund company can take what's learned in academic research and turn that into investment portfolios that can be implemented efficiently and inexpensively you know, for the investor. So case study dimensional funds. So there's been a lot of empirical research, as I mentioned, that's advanced knowledge of financial markets. And we know that several variables can help identify securities with higher expected returns in, in stock markets. We talked about size and relative price. And since that original work by Fama and French, there's a profitability and momentum premium that have been identified. And the interesting thing is that those findings aren't secret. Like everybody knows about them. They've been well published for many years. And most financial professionals are aware of them. The question being how to capture those premiums in portfolios. So when we talk about premiums, just for the benefit of the listeners, we're talking about expected return that's higher than the overall market, let's say. So if you take a look at the, the market premium itself, the stock market premium is just how much more you expect to earn by investing in stocks compared to treasury bills, for example. 
And then we talk about the value premium. That's the extra return you expect to get by investing in value stocks as compared to the, the overall market. So because markets are uncertain, it takes a, a lot of caution when conducting, interpreting, and applying that research. And so what dimensional funds do is they try to build portfolios that consider trade-offs among different premiums and are looking for multiple opportunities to add value. And what they do is they build portfolios that are robust, meaning that they seek to deliver consistent results under a wide variety of market conditions. So when you look at what a company like Dimensional is trying to do, they start with the concept of efficient markets. And they say, you know what, just investing in the market itself, you know, so the market portfolio, so to speak, is a great place to start. But they don't, they aren't indexers. They're not trying to just capture the returns of the market itself. They're trying to get higher expected returns, higher returns than the market. And so that's why they try to capture these premiums in their portfolios. So there's a lot of variables that appear to explain differences in average returns. And some findings come and go like fads and don't hold up to close scrutiny. So examples, things like, you know, dot-com companies in 1999. And again, we're not talking about technology companies in general. We're just talking about any companies that had dot-com in their name. Or what about weed stocks today? Weed stocks, absolutely. Back in the early 2000s, we used to invest in something called BRIC. Well, we didn't, but it was a, another fad. BRIC stocks being Brazil, Russia, India, China. So this was like a, a bit of a fad, you know, trying to pick on emerging, specific emerging markets, you know, as a way to get extra return. I got a question for you on that. Okay, this idea of investing in BRIC has been around for decades now, right? Yep. These countries that you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, India, China, everybody thought, okay, a great place to invest because they got room to grow, right? You yep. know, and emerging economies. Yeah, blah, emerging, blah, blah. emerging. They've been emerging for a long time. So like, you know, I got a question about that. I mean, you know, cause somebody might say, well, okay, I kind of get that they've got their emerging economies that have room to grow, but to how many decades do we give them the benefit of the doubt? That's right. And, and, and again, the question is, do you capture extra return by investing only in those countries? Or are you better off with a market portfolio that may include them, but not at the expense of other international developed and emerging economies as well? I mean, another example of that, Greg, and I know it's a little off topic, maybe it's on topic, is the Philippine Index. Have you ever looked at that one? We talked about it, I believe, on one podcast. I think we did. So when you talk about the index, like the Toronto Stock Exchange or the S&P 500, like that's pretty easy to understand, right? The S&P 500 is the 500 largest stocks that trade in the US, right? So the Filipino Index, there is one company that makes up 40% of that index. So if you're investing in emerging markets because you expected more growth and you focused on the Philippines, well, you better hope that that one company does pretty well, right? So that's, I think that's where we're getting is that maybe there's more risk in that than people understand. Yep. Right on. Oh, and, and by the way, just to finish off our idea, examples of fads, you mentioned cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, you know, that we've talked about at length, IPOs. You know, there's long periods of time where IPOs, you know, any IPO, which is an initial public offering, a new company trading or listing on the exchange, people would bid those IPO share prices up. And, and I think on average, most IPOs fail to 
do particularly well after their initial offering. So, so those are some of the uh, findings that that come and go. Other other things like there's, for instance, here's a bizarre one. They found that one of the best predictors or most correlated factors with stock market returns are sunspots. Yeah, you know, and sense. solar flares, and you know, it may be a coincidence, but it's unlikely that they actually have anything to do with the returns on the stock market. But there are other findings that prove to be a little bit better resilient and go on to further investigation and stand out as dimensions of expected returns. So what criteria do they apply to that empirical research? You know, in academia, attention-catching results tend to get published. So there's a lot of competition in academia, and you have to publish your parish. And there's a lot of temptation for research to overstate results. And results that support a hypothesis might make it into academic papers and results that maybe muddy the waters a little bit might be excluded. And so you have to look, you know, deep into the basis of the academic research before you can actually put that theory into practice. And the reason being is when you're building solutions for clients, investment solutions, there's a great deal at stake there. And you have to make sure that the research can be applied to the benefit of portfolios after taking into account any other premiums, any market frictions or costs, you know, and that's why empirical research is is held to a pretty high standard than more mere interest from an academic standpoint. So interesting, but it's got to be actionable. Yeah, because somebody might believe that something will be the way it is because it's based off of their belief system, right? It doesn't mean that it's true, but their outlook on it might be skewed. Exactly. So when Dimensional looks at premiums or potential premiums, again, factors that would lead to a higher expected returns, they have to meet a few criteria. One is it's got to be sensible. So that's that's the old, you know, solar flare issue. Okay, that's not sensible. It doesn't make sense. And it would be excluded, obviously, from consideration. The premium has to be persistent across time periods. So as I mentioned, you have to be able to sort of look back historically and see if, if in a whole range of time periods, the, the premium appears to exist. It's got to be pervasive across markets, meaning, okay, if it works in the United States stock market, does it work in international markets, in Canadian markets, and that kind of thing, emerging markets? And so those premiums have to work in in all of those scenarios. It's got to be robust to what they call alternative specifications, which just means that if you look at it from a different way, does it still hold up regardless of how how you frame the whole research around it. And it's got to be cost effective because if it costs too much money to implement the particular strategy, then it won't end up in higher actual returns for investors. So you can have greater confidence in premiums that are sensible and verified using market data. And you have to be vigilant against the danger of data mining. You know, And data mining is something we've talked about before, and that's just picking snippets of data that or data that support your hypothesis, but excluding other data, which might negate it. Yeah. And your sample size, like we talked about before, right? Because actually a friend of mine, I ran into her the other day, she just got back from Germany and she said, I don't know what everybody's talking about. I flew from Germany through Pearson to Calgary and I didn't lose my luggage. I said, well, maybe your sample size is too small. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Sample size of one. It's kind of like, I don't know if you, if you follow that comedian, Stephen Wright, he says, I plan to live forever. So far, so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so that's kind of using a little bit of limited data to su- suggest that you're on track. 
Okay. So the, the last hurdle when Dimensional is looking at expected returns is just looking at trade-offs among premiums because the premiums can interact with one another and there can be diminishing marginal benefits to each source of higher expected return. And so if you look at a particular premium, it might look large in isolation, but when you combine it with other premiums, so small companies, value companies, high profitability companies, etc., it might actually reduce the overall return expected from interaction effects. So there's, uh, there's a lot of research that goes into how to look at these premia and put them together into a portfolio. And one of the most significant issues that can come up is, is trading costs. Because trading costs, if you have to spend 4% or 4.5%, let's say, in, in trading costs to capture a 4% premium, then obviously it wouldn't make sense. No. So any premiums that require the portfolio to be turned over several times a year would be difficult to capture. I'm going to call that the Kijiji premium or factor, right? Where you, you buy something from the store at full price yep. and then you sell it on Kijiji at a discount, but then you're happy you got something back for it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that kind of the same thing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so, listen, so Dimensional has really has really focused on three things in the expected return on stocks. Company size, relative price, and expected profitability. And all of those premiums are supported by basic valuation theory and have shown up to perform extremely well. And they appear everywhere they look. You know, if you look at different time periods, markets around the world, and you can capture those premiums in portfolios with reasonably low levels of turnover. And one other thing that they do highlight is that there's always a risk that history won't repeat itself. So there's always a risk that a premium may not appear in the future, even though it's appeared consistently in the past over almost 100 years. Or it might take a long time to appear again. That's right. And so when, when they construct their portfolios, they, they construct efficient, well-diversified, low-turnover portfolios that would make sense even if one of those premiums wasn't realized in a particular time period. And the last thing I want to touch on just before I sort of finish off on this is this whole story of momentum because there's a very solid very solid basket of evidence that momentum is an expected premium meaning that momentum does appear to be persistent in leading to higher expected returns there's a couple of problems there one is that there's not really a good understanding of why momentum exists and so you know one of their criteria is it has to be sensible and and so there's no at this point there's no sensible theoretical underpinning of momentum and the other problem with momentum is that it can require very significant turnover. Okay, so meaning like more than 100% or 200% turnover in one year. And so it's extremely cost ineffective to try to build portfolios around momentum. But well, what Dimensional does is they, they treat momentum more as a, what they call a market friction rather than a dimension of expected return, meaning that momentum can be seen as a trading cost. And so if a, a stock is, is exhibiting negative momentum, meaning it's got momentum going downwards, yeah. then they, if they're planning to buy that stock, they may wait to buy it until that momentum is, has passed. And so it's just, you know, what they would call patient trading, you know, wait for six months or three months to buy that, to buy that stock. And likewise, if, if a stock is showing positive momentum, then they would probably wait to trade it until that momentum has passed. So they temporarily hold off buying or selling in order to build momentum into the portfolios in a cost-effective way. 
Now, Greg, while everybody's listening to this, all three people perhaps, yes, um, <laughs> but it almost sounds like we're promoting dimensional fund advisors as a, uh, a solution for investing. Right. And I think we are. Well, I think dimensional, obviously, it's not the only investment solution out there, but it is one that's strongly grounded in academic research and empirical research. Yeah. And the interesting thing about dimensional is, you know, they've been around for 40 years. The strategies that they use to invest have remained consistent. And they do incorporate new information when it's available, but they're very careful to introduce it and make sure that it just makes sense according to all of their criteria. And they're not dependent on one portfolio manager for the success or failure of their strategies. So absolutely, Dimensional is an incredibly strong fund company. For anybody out there, obviously, before making any investment, we would want them to talk to their advisor, talk to us. Yeah, maybe even a member of the CM group. Exactly. And make sure that, that it makes the most sense for their investments. So I just want to conclude on a couple of points. First of all, with regards to you know how Dimensional incorporates research and empirical research into their portfolios, you know they build robust portfolios because they believe that it delivers a better overall experience for investors. They're deliberate in how they interpret data and how they employ it in portfolios. They apply a high standard to empirical findings regarding premiums, which gives confidence that those premiums are going to hold true in the future. But they also recognize that not all strategies will work all the time. So they try to design portfolios that'll be good solutions, even if the documented premiums don't reappear in the future. And portfolios that target multiple dimensions of expected returns rely on several sources of added value and are executed efficiently can give investors a peace of mind that their investment success is not wholly dependent on the past repeating. And again, as I say, and not wholly dependent on the abilities of one stock picker manager. So I just actually wanted to close off this discussion with something that was written by David Booth, who was the co-founder of Dimensional Funds. He founded the company back in 1981 and remains obviously an active member, executive chairman of the company. And this is what he says. I was compelled to approach investing differently by the research Fama and other leading academics were doing to better understand markets and returns. There's a general agreement on what financial science tells us, yet so much can be gained or lost in application. Just as some sports teams can consistently execute their strategies better than others, investment professionals can consistently add value by dealing better with market mechanics. Great implementation requires paying attention to detail, applying judgment, and being flexible. That's what we've built our firm to do. We start with a fairly simple notion about markets and expected returns, And the real value comes from how we implement those ideas every day. It's important to us that clients understand we're advocating for them along every step of the investment process. What do we mean by advocating? That's when it comes to implementation, the little things add up. We fight for every basis point, never forgetting that we're investing money our clients have worked lifetimes to save. I think that's, that's, you know, you feel good when you hear that that's what the goal of the company that's managing your investments is, is doing. Well, I got a couple of things that come to mind before we wrap up here too, in regards to all of that, that you said, I find that, you know, many companies or many researchers actually start by trying to support something they think they believe, right? So they're data mining to find. Yeah. A, to prove, to, to prove, prove their hypothesis. Right, That's right. right. 
Whereas the focus of dimensional and others would be to create a hypothesis based on the findings. That's right. Right. Which is very, very different and is the right way of doing it. Right. right. Exactly. And actually, you just got me thinking of something when you're talking about how David Booth mentions sports teams or something to that effect. I know you're not a baseball guy, Greg. I'm a Dodgers fan. I was watching the Dodgers game last night. They were playing the Washington Nationals. Okay. The Dodgers are the best team in baseball right now. The Nationals are the worst team in baseball right now. They played their second game of, a, I think, a three-game series yesterday. Do you know what happened in the last two games? Well, given the way you're asking me that question, I'm going to guess that the Nationals beat the Dodgers. The Nationals beat the Dodgers two games in a row. So I guess it goes back to, to me, it's like the factor approach. is like, I know the Dodgers are going to have a much better season than the Nationals. But in those two games, that short period of time, they just didn't. Right. So that would be the same thing as when people say, yeah, well, values out of, yeah, I don't know. Out value of, doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Value's dead. It's like, well, maybe in short periods of time, it appears that way, but it's always there and it will come back. Right. So anyways, that was a little side note, but. Well, and one other, one other thing, which totally unrelated to that, and I meant, meant to mention it at the beginning of this podcast, you recall how we, in one of our previous podcasts, we called it the annual death of the 6040 portfolio. Yes, the annual death. Yep. Well, the good news is I read an article today by Morgan Stanley that says the 60-40 portfolio was not dead, just resting. Ah. So the good news is some, <laughs> having of, the, a siesta. some of the other investment firms are, are coming around to our way of thinking. So, <laughs> and again, just to your point, you know, there can be short periods of time when certain investing strategies don't work, but it doesn't mean they don't work over the long, the long haul. Yeah, yeah. The Siesta Portfolio. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess that should do it for today. Yep, hey? you bet. All right. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.